Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made four low-budget feature films of varying success, and I've been to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length films on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. All right, welcome back to Discount Film School. Uh, sitting here with Henrik Kudo, who uh, uh, I actually met just a week ago uh, on our – I made a little Discount Film School collaborative uh, Facebook website hoping to, to actually kind of open up this conversation about filmmaking a little bit broader than it already has been and meet people exactly like him. Uh, we started – we got to talking, noticed that he was an insanely prolific filmmaker uh, about my age, um, and we love – prolific artists on this show people who make shit over and over and over again can't, aren't satisfied with uh with idle hands i watched two two of his films in the last week um depression the movie and babysitter massacre uh which which was good for me to see that uh that even though he seems to be known for horror filmmaking mostly uh that's it's not exclusively that and i'm just happy to have him talk to us on discount film school how you doing i'm pretty good how are you doing man i'm very good Good. So you're uh, Ohio based. Yes. And have you always uh, lived there? Have you made all of your films there or, you know, kind of take us back to childhood? Oh, sure. Well, childhood. Oh, boy. Uh, well, basically, uh, I was born uh, in Ohio. Um, I spent a little bit of my childhood, a very small amount of my childhood in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, but for the most part, Ohio boy, uh, when I turned 18, I actually moved to New Jersey and I worked for a uh, production distribution house called Pop Cinema Alternative Cinema. And that's kind of where I got uh, the majority of my experience uh, as far as the film business. Um, before that, I had been working with cable access. I had been working with, you know, uh, my home Macintosh and video cameras. And that was kind of where I got the, uh, the beginning of my technical experience. But uh, when I uh, moved out to New Jersey, I call that my college, except that I got paid which was nice instead of paying. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I had to move to a strange land full of strange people and uh, learn a craft, uh, which I'm you know, very grateful I had the opportunity to do. So I actually made uh, two films on the East Coast as well. Uh, my first feature was called Marty Jenkins and the Vampire Bitches. It was a uh, uh, kind of a horror comedy, like a Fright Night meets 40-Year-Old Virgin. And then, uh, and then while I was in New Jersey, I made an anthology film that I produced and directed part of called Faces of Schlock. Uh, and then I also made a film called Bleeding Through, which was a uh, kind of a drama horror uh, experimental movie. So I made those both out there and then I uh, came back to Ohio and that's when I made Depression, the movie and everything else onward. What kind of hooked you in? I mean, you said you were <clears throat> as a youngster, you were kind of involved with the the local cable access, which I think is like the um, like the gateway drug for for everybody that's like you and I. Oh, yeah. Um, but what was you know, was there was there. I notice you're also a musician. You're kind of a, a you know a broad range artist. Uh, what 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 was it that kind of hooked you into filmmaking? <clears throat> well, it, it, that's a very good question because uh, not only was I involved in the cable access thing, but I was really young. I uh, I actually still have my uh, my certificate card. I was 12 years old when I uh, when I took my certification at the cable access station. Uh, I just um, I didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, I rented a lot of videotapes. And, uh, that's really, that's really the beginning of it. I, uh, I always loved television. I always loved movies. I was really into Star Trek and horror movies, Nightmare on Elm Street, things like that. Um, and those, you know, those movies, uh, when you're a kid and you don't have a lot of people around for you, you, those movies become your friends. 
And that was what happened with me. You know, movies became my friends and I wanted to know everything I could about movies. And uh, I was actually uh, doing an interview a few days ago and I, it kind of dawned on me. The other thing is, uh, you know, if you're watching romantic comedies and stuff, especially in the early 90s, uh, you never hear the stories of like people just getting a bunch of cameras together and uh, and making a romantic comedy or making a, a drama. But you do hear about how Sam Raimi just made the evil dead. Yeah. So you kind of hear these inspirational stories about uh, making horror movies and uh, you want to emulate them because you want to emulate your heroes. So I think uh, uh, a huge influence on me making movies was like listening to the commentary track on the first DVD release of Evil Dead and hearing Sam Raimi say how they just, you know, got a camera, filmed it, why they put sound effects in, et cetera, et cetera. So I just kind of uh, it snowballed. You know, I wanted to make TV shows because I had a lot of energy and I was bored and I was a ham. And then uh it just kept it kept spiraling. I just kept making more and more material. I we've talked on this show before a few times about this concept of whenever you can kind of see through the seams, whenever you can kind of see through how the production was made. And this doesn't just apply to film. This could be, you know, uh, I, I would say grunge for sure is the same sort of thing where anytime you can see through the production, through the illusion, um, it makes you go, oh, then it, it was made by a human and I could probably do that too. Yeah, as opposed to a giant art machine, which is kind yeah, of the right. way it feels when you're a kid. You, you look at something and you don't think like, oh, so some people solved like a thousand problems and then there was a movie. You look at it and just go, wow, this movie was just manufactured. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, once you can uh, you can peek behind uh, the scenes, you can definitely start to go, maybe I can do it. It also takes a level of, of narcissism to be able to go like, wow, I love movies. I could make a movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, or at least at least delusion. Oh yeah, oh, um, yeah, without a doubt. I always say, you know, that my my first feature was like, you know, I did it when I was in my teens, and there's no there's no reason for anyone to do that <laughs> unless they don't actually know how hard it is. It, that's exactly <laughs> no, you're completely right. Uh, yeah. my my first uh, feature. Uh, like 90 minute feature I did when I was 18 years old. And looking back, I, I just, cause I talk to, to young people now, you know, film, film students and things like that. And they're like, you know, I want to make my first feature, but I'm worried about this and that and this and that. And then I stop myself and go, wow, I was just dumb. I had no clue how hard I could have failed. I had no clue how hard I could have crashed and burned. Yeah. I was just, I was just so unaware. But you, you probably made all of the right mistakes because you were too stupid to know it was impossible. Yeah. You just say, well, what the hell? I mean, my attitude was, uh, just go do it. You know, uh, right. The, uh, when I was younger, like when I was about 15 years old, cause I didn't really come from, uh, I came from pretty humble background. I didn't have a lot of things. That's one of the reasons cable access was great was that they give you access to editing computers. They give you access to cameras and I yes. didn't have any of those things. And, uh, but as time went on, you know, my mother started to notice I had an interest and she was highly supportive. So she like got me a cheap little DV camcorder and eventually I got a, uh, you know, a computer that could edit. So I was doing everything at home and I would just every weekend, it would be friends and making some bullshit, you know, just making up some, uh, some movie, no scripts because, uh, that takes too much discipline. Why write a <laughs> script? You know, no, no, no. Just get everybody here and then we'll figure out what we're going to do. We have, we have fake blood. We have a camera and you know, we have faces. That's all we need. Yeah. Uh, and, but those, uh, it's funny cause looking back, I'll be like, Oh God, those were atrocious, but they were the perfect training ground. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you make that mistake where you like, you break the 180 degree rule before you even know what a 180 degree rule is. And when you're editing it on your little computer and your 15 year old brain is like, that doesn't look right. Yeah. And then you just never do it again. And then when you're, you know, friggin' 21 years old, you hear somebody say 180 degree rule, you Google it and go, oh yeah, that thing where that person's face looked fucked up that one time. <laughs> that thing I already kind of sorted out just through trial and error and trying to understand why my movie doesn't look the th way that 
the films that I respect and that I want to emulate do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. I remember one of the biggest breakthroughs I ever had in film was uh, when I uh, when I was watching movies and I was trying to figure out what is the difference between uh, my movie and this movie. And one of them was uh, they didn't cut on dialogue. I remember that mm. was like the biggest the biggest moment. Like I'm like I'm 17 years old and I was like, wait, when the other person starts talking, sometimes it lingers on the other person first. Or Rather it goes than in cutting early. between the two yeah. lines. Of, so it's, yeah, right. it's not cutting on the sound. And I remember, like, then when I cut a piece after figuring that out, people were like, wow, this looks really good. And I was like, ha, ah, ha, finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did you, were you kind of a daunting presence for your, did you ever burn out your friends when you were that age with I, the filmmaking? I didn't because of my Charles Manson-esque ability to get people to do what I want them to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I've been told about myself. Um, I, I was, um. Actually, a lot like I am now, I, I would never request very much time of people. Um, mm -hmm. I'm notorious mm -hmm. for very fast shooting schedules. And when I was a kid, it was, you know, if we were going to, we would make things with no scripts. So, you know, they might be 15 minutes, they might be 30 minutes. You just don't know. Uh, but they never took more than a day or two. Right. And that was kind of the rule. And now when I make features, a lot of times, you know, we only have four or five days. Uh, that's, that's the, uh, the average amount of time we have for a feature. Like you saw babysitter massacre. Uh, we shot that in, uh, in five principal days. Wow. Uh, non-consecutive and then a bunch of pickup shoots. So what do you do for, are you, uh, kind of, do you do a solo pre-production? That's, that's, you know, cause you have to obviously prep all of the effects. You have to prep <clears throat> the car that you're going to shoot in. You have to prep the locations. Is that you just have that sit straight out for five days and then you just hammer it out? Uh, we don't do it straight out. It was actually broken up on, on babysitter on, uh, because we just couldn't get the schedules the way we wanted because uh, yeah. babysitter came together really fast uh, from writing to deliver to distributor. It was five months and uh, it would have been faster, but I actually had a uh, death in my, uh, in my near family. So uh, it, that kind of slowed everything down. Um, we just, uh, I would just break down the script and, uh, and just be relentless on getting a hold of everybody and finding out when everybody's available. We did have a few instances, like, uh, one of the big ending scenes of the movie, we were moving so fast that I had forgotten that there was makeup involved in the scene. It was minor. It was like, cause it was makeup. A girl gets her nose busted. And then, you know, the next scene she, we didn't have her nose busted, but I caught it right before we recorded. I was like, wait. She needs makeup and we didn't have a makeup artist scheduled. So I had to call my makeup artists in a panic and try to get somebody to come over in like an hour and do it. And luckily we had two makeup artists on that film. So there was always like a chance. One said no, one said yes. And that's what happened. But literally like the makeup artist left her husband with their child, came over to her house, did the makeup and then went home. <laughs> like, what, was it a, was it effects makeup or was it yeah, like, it was, um, it was effects makeup. It was, uh, yeah. she had had her nose busted in the scene before. And uh, we needed to have it redone, you know, because mm -hmm. that was we a week earlier when she'd had it done. But like it had just slipped my mind until literally, I think, like 20 minutes before talent arrived. I was like, wait, shit, <laughs> shit, shit, shit. So, uh, you know, and that was a, a, a nice, solid mistake uh, on my part. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, you do a lot of pre-production. Uh, usually the way we shoot is weekends. So it's like if it's a four day principle. Uh, then it's a Saturday, Sunday, and then another Saturday and Sunday. Like uh, my new film, uh, we just had the last screening of last night called Haunted House and Sorority Row. It had four days principal. And it's, you know, it's an 80, uh, 82 minute uh, horror feature. And uh, and I think it's pretty impressive considering how quickly we made it. Um, but uh, that was literally two weekends uh, not even back to back because we were having too many scheduling problems. Like everybody and their brother decided to leave town in October. So 
uh, we shot like the last weekend of September and the first weekend of November because everybody has seemed to have a wedding or uh, a vacation planned. Uh, yeah. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've become I've gotten really lucky because as I've gone, the more you do, the more crew seems to want to be a part of it. Like exactly. now I have yep. a, I have a production designer now. And that's amazing because he looks at the script and does the prop breakdowns and he looks at the script and does the effects breakdowns and he looks at the script and figures out what we need. And then he sends me a list for me to either approve or to buy personally, you know, depending on whatever we're doing. So uh, before I had that, honestly, a lot of it was just, uh, uh, you know, see to your pants uh, because that's kind of the way I like to do things. Um, I used to feel guilty about that, but I, I don't anymore because it seems to work out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah because i don't shot list either i'm really i'm reckless well you also you're your own shooter yeah that's true and and i i would like to i'd love to work with a dp but i feel like my circumstances are too abusive right like, i feel like i can abuse myself on you know 100 something setups a day because i know exactly it's in my head already i don't have to there's no chance that i'll yell there's no chance that i don't know i just I, I would feel guilty being like all right here's your your day right now uh now we're gonna do 12 hours and you're never gonna stop moving and if you don't know what i want i'm gonna get very frustrated and have to leave the room i felt that same way i continue to feel that same way about editing i i must be my own editor i don't understand uh, uh folks that make films on the budget level of of us that that farm that out. Well, he, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because Haunted House and Sorority Row was the first film that I brought an editor on. Yeah. I did how, not what was, cut it how, was the, how was the experience? It was good. Um, you know what the trick is, uh, is you have to let go. I'm not generally a control freak, but, it, it, but you know, I'd been editing for so long. And I, I brought on a guy that uh, he'd been working crew. He was a good friend. And he'd made his own feature. And I thought the feature was good. And then we did a few small projects, little... Uh, I got hired to do a uh, awards video, you know, like one of those side gigs, but I had no time. So I, I, you know, I took my fee and said, I'll give you half. If you cut it, I'll shoot it. And it worked well. So I was like, let's have you cut Haunted House because I was in the middle of um, of cutting a Christmas family movie called A Bulldog for Christmas. Yep. Uh, when we were shooting Haunted House, I was still po in post on that. So I had no time to cut it. Um, and uh, the editor's name is Eric Whiting, by the way, you can uh, IMDB him. Uh, but uh, he... Uh, he did a great job, but the thing you had to remember is how malleable film is. Because when you first watch it, you could all if you if you're thinking the wrong way, all you'll think about is how it's not right. But right. if you're thinking the right way, you're thinking about how I only have to put this much work in to make this right. Like yep. it's the same way with having a, a writer write for you. That was also Haunted House was my first film with a, a screenwriter other than myself. And uh, uh, it was the same kind of idea. He wrote it in final draft. Once I approved the, the, his final draft, he'd send it to me and then any rewrites I would do myself, but they'd only take like a night or two instead of three or four weeks to write it mm. myself. And it would have a different voice and a different style and it would be a different kind of story than anything I'd ever told before. So it was win-win. Bring in some genetic variation to your body or work, right? Exactly. And, and it was the yeah. same way with editing. Like back then I was on Final Cut 7 and uh, Eric was on Final Cut 7. So he'd cut the movie. Uh, I'd watch it, give him notes. He'd show it to me again. I'd watch it, give him notes one more time. Uh, then he'd send me the last cut. I would do the polish and the sound mix because I didn't have the, <laughs> I think doing a picture cuts a lot more fun than doing a sound mix. So I did the sound mix myself because that's like, it was like going, Hey, do you want to drive uh, a, a cool yeah. sports car versus going, Hey, do you want to shovel up dog crap? <laughs> it's, a pain, it's the pain in the ass. Yeah. The so, I, yeah. so I did the sound mix and I did the basic polishing and color myself, but it was the same thing. Like he just handed it to me. It was in final cut. We both speak the same language of, of the editing software. So mm -hmm. at the end of the day, all it did was uh, speed everything up 
And it also allowed me to, you know, explore collaboration a little bit more because I'm not a big auteur guy. It's always been out of necessity, you know, yeah. uh, you know, like, why don't you, why, why do you shoot your own stuff? And it's like, because it's too important to train somebody while I'm doing it, you know, or why, you know, why don't you have uh, somebody produce with you too important? I can't train somebody if they screw up, it's my money and it's my reputation. So, or it's a, or it's a practical issue of, of, um, you know, the, the time it takes to communicate something so specific, uh, it could already have been done by now because you could have shot it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I that's exactly how I feel, except just about editing and not about uh, uh, shooting. I, you know, my first movie I shot myself and, you know, I'm adequate to to pour. <laughs> and, uh, but but I, I spent so much time focused on composition and focused on the next setup that I wasn't able to answer important questions. I was I was noticing I wasn't approachable by people to to ask their questions. But if I get to kind of spend time with everything that's not cinematography, it really opens me up to discover things while the cinematographer is figuring things out. So that at least that's been my experience. Oh, then sure. in editing in editing we shoot it the 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 shooting is so tight that uh that it really is shot to edit, you know, and really precisely. So uh there's only a few different editing paths um, to get to the, to the right answer. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, it's like, which way do you want to skin a cat? You know? Sure. And well, and, and, uh, I want to mention, uh, early on when I was first really, uh, shooting a lot of projects, uh, I had the same problem you mentioned about like not being with your actors enough, Mm -hmm. uh, because you were so busy with the camera work. Um, and the good part of that has been that the more I work, the, the easier it becomes because I, I like, when we did Haunted House, there were moments where, you know, the, it was really fun. I highly recommend making a ghost movie because you can just do whatever you want. Because somebody <laughs> would be like, why is there so much blue light coming through that window? And I'd be like, because ghosts exist. Who yep. cares? Like, it looks cool. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but like I could because of the experience, because I DP'd a bunch of projects and I DP'd my own projects, yada, yada, yada. I could tell my my, uh, you know, my grips and I could tell my PAs like put these lights here and here and here. And then I'd walk off and talk to the actors and I'd be like, you shout when the lights are set up. And then I'd look at the lights, look through the camera real quick and go uh, move them. And then I go back like it, you get a shorthand. Once you've done it a lot, you start to go like, oh, well, I know if I put this light here, it'll be fine. Like, so you, you, uh, that's been the best thing about my career has been that as, as I become more streamlined as a director of photography, I can focus more on being a director. Mm -hmm. Um, and I definitely think that that's, uh, that's come through like on, um, on depression, the movie, I, I, that was, I think the first film where I really focused on what it meant to be a director, like really focused on sitting down with the actors and making sure they understood what was going on. Well, it's so dial, it's so dialogue and character based. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that movie was an interesting an interesting thing, because uh, I don't know if I realized it, but when I was making Depression, the movie, it was almost like uh, I was going through a lot of stuff when I made that movie because I had made a movie called Bleeding Through right before it and it languished in post-production hell. Uh, And that's my own fault. I didn't want to edit it. I was uh, I was uh, going through depression. I I suffer from chronic depression, things like that. And uh, my life was falling apart. I was unemployed. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And uh, but. So when I finished uh, Bleeding Through, uh, I I wanted to make a movie that was just whatever I wanted it to be. And I was really inspired by a a movie. I don't know. Most people haven't heard of it, but it's called Eddie Presley. It's a it's a it's a uh, drama comedy directed by Jeff Burr, who's known for uh, Mm -hmm. for horror sequels like Stepfather 2 and Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, things like that. But it's his his personal film and it's excellent. It's an excellent movie. And I'd been inspired by that since I was 16. And every now and then when I would think about movies and I think about we had a lot of bullshit come up 
uh, on bleeding through. Uh, a lot of like crew fighting things and things that were very unpleasant. So I was kind of like gun shy about making movies. Uh, so I went, well, you know what? I'm just going to write a script that's whatever I want it to be. And if anybody figures out what the hell that is, that's great. Uh, but I'm just going to do that. So I wrote Depression and started shooting it. And uh, I, it's weird. Like, it turned out well. And I think that's the only reason I still make movies. <laughs> I think it's possible that if that had been a complete bomb, I might not have picked up a camera again. It's so true. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had the same experience where I've been in the middle of a movie that I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know if this will ever get finished. It's, it seems to have everything going against it, but you knew, you know, that if you don't bring that thing to the finish line, you, you know, another movie can't follow somehow, you know? Um, and, and I also think it's interesting, um, that you suffer from depression because it's kind of, there's an interesting contradiction between that, which depression has always been described to me as it takes away the tools that you need to fight it. Right. Um, it, it, it takes away your own ability to, to overcome it. And, um, and, and yet you're an insanely active filmmaker, which is uncharacteristic of people who suffer with depression. Sure. And you also seem to have sort of a family, uh, you know, of, of artists and actors and crew, um, that, that, move from movie to movie with you. So talk about a little bit about kind of negotiating those two things. Oh, sure. Well, um, the thing is, I mean, luckily, first of all, I want to, I want to open with, uh, that I have, I would call it very mild depression. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've had friends who require medication, you know, and things like that. So I, no, no disrespect to them. I, the reason I can handle it is because it works for me. Um, I often joke that I'm good at being depressed. Because when a wave of depression hits you, it comes from nothing. Uh, you know, being a depressed, having depression, it, 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 it'll tackle you when nothing wrong is going on. Like if a girl dumps you and you're sad, that's humanity. If right. you're, if you're watching a movie and you're like, Terminator 2 is my favorite movie. And then all of a sudden you're like, why am I alive? You're like, oh <laughs> shit. Okay. That's not normal. Okay. And what I do personally by being good at it is that I, I look at it for what it is. I go, oh, I'm, I'm miserable for no reason right now. I better just hunker down and weather through this storm. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But making movies and having personal accomplishments honestly makes me able to keep going. Mm. It, uh, uh, my bedroom and, uh, and my office are... They're only posters of either my projects or films that have inspired me my whole life. Like, uh, like where the room I'm talking to you in right now, I have an original "Not of This Earth" by Jim Wynorski poster. I have an original, uh, let's see, I have an original "Haunting of Morella" and Dinosaur Island poster. It's Slumber Party Massacre poster. You know, I the and I wake up in the morning and look at like a Faces of Schlock poster or my Babysitter Massacre poster, and I just kind of wake up. And even if I want to wake up dead, I, when I open my eyes, I go, "I did that. I made that. I'm gonna keep going." I'm going to keep going because when depression ended, when the movie depression movie ended, uh, I I used to tell people it was like a weird voodoo. I changed what that word meant to me Mm. because now the word depression doesn't just mean a thing I'm always fighting to try and get ahead of. It means a a creative endeavor that I'm highly proud of. So uh, and and depression movie was literally an exercise and I wanted to take the things that were that made me the saddest in my life and I wanted to make light of them. Um, right. like the stories in depression, in the movie are all somewhat based on truth. 
Um, except the one with the 40 year old guy who's miserable as divorce. I am 27 and I've never been married. That's but, going to become true later. Uh, I, you know, what's funny is the actor <laughs> who played that character after he did his after he read the, the monologue, he was like, how do you know what it's like to be married in 40? And I was like, I just assumed I was like, what, what would it be like to be miserable in 40? <laughs> uh, but like, uh, you know, there are a lot of things in Depression, the movie that are really sad. I mean, this the whole thing about like a grandfather dying and nobody telling you literally it happened to me. That was a real yep. life thing. And uh, I wrote it in the script and, you know, the juju, it kind of took it away. It made it a different thing. It made me able to uh, to to think about it differently. Although I remember when I was shooting it, it was uh, it was really miserable. <laughs> it, it was tough emotionally because yeah. you were c- kind of back there. Oh, interesting. Well, and well, uh, like I'll never forget the, the scene where the guy is talking to his ex-girlfriend and he's crying on the couch and he's like yelling and he's being in my opinion like a really big baby a really big selfish baby because his his friend is trying to comfort him with examples of her own life and he literally says i don't care it doesn't help shut up yeah that i really did that to a loved one Mm -hmm. i i was so upset i buried my face in a couch and when she tried to say like well you know when my grandfather died i literally went shut up i don't care it doesn't help you're not helping and i apologized for years to that woman and she was on the set running microphone that day oh great so we both just had this kind of silent moment together when i'm like yeah i just wrote our lives into it that that, that has to i mean uh, that's like the purpose of art right there to sort of bury something that won't be buried you know yeah uh, and and i think you know i commend you for for wanting to take something that's that deeply embarrassing and, and putting it out on a, on a screen. And it, it, it has to take the wind out of it to some extent after that. It, it's, it's an interesting experience. Um, cause when I wrote my first feature, Marty Jenkins, and the vampire bitches, it was when I really learned to write because I had gone through such a, the, the, at that time, the most miserable breakup of my life, right when I needed to make this movie. And, uh, so the movie is full of, uh, of breakup stuff. It's full of, of vitriol. It's, it's, but it's so personal. Mm-hmm. And I remembered after it was made, people loving it. I mean, the, 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 the technical aspects are negligible. I was 18 years old. I was shooting on a GL two. I, uh, you know, I knew a little bit about editing. It's a rough movie, but the writing in my opinion was really spot on because it was just nonstop sad humor about what it's like to feel like you'll never have anyone. And, uh, and that was kind of the, that was like the breaking point when I realized this is the story I want to tell. It took me a few years, uh, cause depression, the movie was the next time I made a movie that was a comedy about this, the miseries of life. Mm-hmm. I, cause I never realized my first film was about the miseries of life. It was joking, but with vampires. So, right. uh, you know, cause I'd actually, the movie I made before that was called bleeding through and it's a horror movie. That's really just a, a, uh, study of social anxiety. It's about a character who can't get out of her own head to uh, experience life. And then when she finally does life hurts her and she hurts life back. <laughs> so, so if you were, you know, if, if, if there was an 18 year old listening to this right now and going like, yeah, I, I, I've, I often feel complacent and like, I can't, you know, be active and, <clears throat> but I really want to make this movie that I have in my head and I don't know who's going to do it. Yeah. You know, what would you, what would you tell that person? Well, I would tell them, uh, Something I told myself when I was in a really bad bind, I once, uh, I, one day I had two realizations. So you have to ask yourself two questions. Number one, you have to ask yourself, will making movies be the thing that makes you happy? Mm. And then your second question needs to be, do I want to be happy? Mm-hmm. 
Once you know the answer to those things, will it through? Don't stop. Go outside and don't come back till you have a movie. You know, that's the real, that's the end. Cause you know, it's the work you do the work, right? You do the work. And then when the work's done, it's, I always say making movies is solving a thousand problems. And then there happens to be a movie when you're done. Yeah. You know, and some there's people a, have a yeah. disc or a, a streaming video or yeah, something. <laughs> exactly. Well, some people have trouble grasping that because they have too much focus on the big picture. You know, right. they'll, they'll be like, oh, well, I want to make a movie. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. The way I look at it is, oh, I need money to make a movie. Then when that's solved, I go, oh, I need a script to make a movie. And then when that's solved, I go. But then the script is a bunch of problems. You know, well, why would this person go up these stairs? Uh, you know, and then, like I said, so it's like a thousand, two thousand problems. You're shooting and you're like, oh, the sun's the, the clouds up. What do we do? Oh, this person is vomiting. What do we do? You know, it, it's just problem, problem, problem. And um, I actually I get that from my mother. My mother works in, in corporate America and she's a problem solver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, you put her in charge of an aspect of a company and she saves the company money. And uh, it's funny because I never really realized that until years and years later, because my mother and I were like having lunch and, and just talking about the most rewarding parts of our week. And they were the same. <laughs> they were. Like, they were both. We do, we do yeah. the same job. We do the exact same job. I just do it in a in a uh, in a field that's deemed creative, as to where she does creative solutions for a field that's not deemed creative. So it's all creativity. So you look at it as each problem is a project, and the projects accumulate into a result. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like if you solve a thousand problems, you accidentally have a movie. <laughs> right. Oh, totally. Totally. And I, I actually, I always forget, you know, I, I'm like, I'm always so excited to, in a way to go back to the bottom of the mountain, you mm-hmm. know, when it's time to do a new movie from scratch, what it could be anything. It lives in potential right now. It lives in fantasy. And, um, <clears throat> and you, you get to, if you've made a few of these by now, especially features, which are all marathons, yeah. uh, you, you get to start to remember Oh, right. We had to solve that problem last time. Things like, you know, even stupid shit. Like I have to make like a hundred DVDs. I forgot that I have to make a hundred DVDs and I forgot that I had to collect everybody's address and mail them out. And you just forget about the legit, you know, there's so many quiet moments where you're solving problems that, uh, that, you know, if you were focused on, and, and, and maybe that's the key too, is, is balancing, uh, the big picture and the small picture, because if you were, if you were too focused on the, big picture, um, you would never get it done. But if you were, if, if you remembered all of the pains and aches of the whole thing, you'd be like, fuck that. You know, if I have video games waiting for me. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, so. it's true. Uh, that's, yeah. and that's like, that's one of the reasons I really love making features now is because I, I just wrapped my eighth feature and mm-hmm. I can make features. <laughs> like I've done it enough that I, I'm not afraid anymore. I don't look at it as an unaccomplishable task. I just look at it as a task that requires solutions. And oftentimes they're the same solutions. You know, uh, that's that's the other thing. Like uh, we're I'm right now. I literally have a, a brand new script on my desk that I'm uh, I'm working on the notes for the writer. We're supposed to shoot it in like about two months, maybe a little sooner than that. Um, and I have a pitch with a with a production house right now that I'm waiting to get. Uh, to get the go ahead to write the script, which means that then I'll get cut the check and I could go make the movie. Um, I do. I, I run a really weird uh, production company myself because it's a, a movie like Awkward Thanksgiving, the one I just wrapped, which is a, more like Depression the movie than anything mm-hmm. else. I mean, it's it's a very much a weird, sad, raunchy comedy. Because that's the other thing. I like I like things to be poignant, and then there's a naked girl. I, I find yeah. that to be really rewarding. I don't know why, but. Um, but so, you know, I, I do that, those kinds of films, which are usually self-financed or financed through, like we did a Kickstarter for Awkward Thanksgiving, which was very successful. Um, 
And then uh, on the same side, I have films uh, out in pitch to uh, production houses. Usually they're horror movies or science fiction movies uh, that are, you know, going to be made tailor made to the market. And it's weird because I like both of those jobs. Like if I, if, cause somebody had asked me like, would, if you had your choice, would you only make movies like awkward Thanksgiving? And I was like, no, yeah. I have so much people don't even realize how much fun making babysitter massacre was. Mm-hmm. I got to make a movie like the movies I rented when my mother wasn't looking my whole childhood. Yeah. I, I had a blast and we, we screened that to a packed house, 230 people when it premiered, everybody wanted to see it. And I got to watch everybody like applaud when the title came up. And I was like, this is a ride. No matter how good my drama comedy is or my romantic comedy is or whatever, no matter how good my family film is, no one is applauding the God damn title <laughs> there yeah there <clears throat> it, it reminds me of um there was something i heard not too long ago i think it was pendulette who said it and he said um that that some of the best art is when the the intellectual and the visceral collide oh yeah <clears throat> and this is sort of what you're talking about um and and i think that horror movies have this in spades but um where you have you know a, a i get a roller coaster is a really good example where y- you know you have the feeling of uh, this, this is going to kill me or I'm going to die, but you're laughing because well, they, they, people can't die on this. Imagine what the insurance rates would be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, So you're, th- th- that's kind of where the best art lives, at least in, in my opinion, I really agree with him. It, it, it's the same kind of thing where, you know, i make a, I make a family movie about an abomination, half man, half ape. You know? <laughs> like, sure. That kind of thing. Well, and, and, and it's absolutely true, and uh, and it's great because you get to you get to flex different kinds of muscles when you tell different kinds of stories, and that's my favorite thing is the variety of the stories I tell. I'm I mean I find, I'm very proud that you know uh, people would say like uh, the the few people we've screened Haunted House and Sorority Row twice. It comes out nationwide July 22nd, so it hasn't been seen by a lot of people yet. But people will come to me and say like I really love it was a great follow up to Babysitter Massacre, and then I have to go hold the hold the phone. I made a movie about a talking dog around Christmas after Babysitter Massacre. Yeah, that right. was my follow-up, pal. You know, uh, <laughs> that, but that makes me feel great. I really enjoy uh, enjoy doing that. Um, you know, I have all kinds of uh, strange things. We, uh, I just had a meeting with my screenwriter, the one who, uh, the gentleman John Oak Dalton, who wrote Haunted House. We're talking about a science fiction movie, which I've always wanted to do but could never afford. But we, I think we came up with a way to do it. And, uh, you know, things like that, that's what gets me excited. I love making, uh, I love making different things. Mm-hmm. And if horror movies help pay the bills, uh, more consistently than making comedies, then I, I, I'm a blessed son of a bitch. I mean, that's, that's it's all not like doing. you hate, it's not like you hate making them. No, no. That's the thing is they're really fun. And, uh, and the audience is very receptive. And you know what the wildest thing is, is that I call them like the black t-shirt crowd, the, the horror crowd. Yeah. Right. Most of those motherfuckers bought the bulldog movie because <laughs> like, once they once they know you, they're really not as uh, strict as people like to depict them as that. They're like, no, man, evil dead or nothing. Fuck you. You know, that's not the way they are. They love movies. It's just yeah. that that the, the for whatever reason, science fiction and horror have a fandom that comedy movies and dramas don't have. I don't right. know why I, I, I've never been able to figure it out, but it is most certainly true. But they also, they become fans of directors. Yeah. Right. So if they find, if you make a great horror movie that they really connect with, or even they just had a lot of fun watching, they, they, they will start to follow your filmography. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we live in an age where that is more common than it used to be as well. You know, I, I, I'm so confused by, 
uh, by filmmakers that still spend a lot of time building up production companies. Because at mm-hmm. this point, there isn't one. Like, I don't really own a production company. I have an imprint that I put at the beginning of movies because you're supposed to do that. But, <laughs> but like... My films are Henrik Kuto films. That's what they are because that's what you're supporting. You you know Henrik Kuto from Facebook. You know him from his movies. You know him from his writing, his music, whatever. Um, you know you know those things, and you know his movies. That's that's really what it is. Like uh, that's how you know we fundraised for Awkward Thanksgiving. I I came out and I told my audience literally. This was so flattering. I told told my audience, hey guys, I want to make this movie that's like Depression the movie, but I can't afford to do it. You guys in? And they were in. And it was, it was the most overwhelming experience of my life because, you know, even though we did okay with depression, the movie, uh, it had a very successful screening and the DVD did pretty well, even though that all, you know, came to pass he, having my, my fan base who mostly buy, you know, babysitter massacre and things like yeah. that from me, uh, having them go shit. Yeah. We want a movie like that shit. Yeah. We want more of that made me feel incredible. Yeah. So, we have to you have to do it after they say that, right? Oh, yeah, that was the that was kind of the best part. We actually because uh, I should mention, I mean, we we were very modest in our goal for awkward Thanksgiving. I, I, I always whenever I do crowdfunding, I always just try and come up with the bare minimum amount of money that would allow you to make the movie. How do you calculate that? How do you figure out how much it costs experience at this point? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there are a few expenses. I always know, like uh, I work with a composer named Buzz Amato who did Babysitter Massacre score, which was a freaking phenomenal score. Uh, his rate is set for me. So I always know how much I need to pay him, uh, when, uh, when I have a project that can afford him. Uh, cause he's a, he's a renowned musician. He used to be a uh, Curtis Mayfield's piano player. He's a, uh, he's produced tons of tracks that have charted on the, uh, on the, you know, whatever the music charts are, but, uh, but he's also just a really cool guy and really supportive. And I knew like when I was going to do awkward Thanksgiving that he was going to do the score. So that was calculated into the budget. Um, I knew that I would need to feed people for five days. That was calculated into the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that. So I came to the number of $2,400. I own all the equipment. So I said, fuck it. $2,400. We all go make the movie. Right. And uh, we raised that in less than the first day. We, uh, we raised that in less than a day. Uh, it was insane. And uh, we ended up uh, resting at $6,400, which was a nice boost. We were able to buy some new equipment. We were able to add an extra day to shooting. Uh, you know, little things that uh, that make life worth living. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of people out there who who crack the code of raising a little bit of money if they need to for production. They crack the code of <clears throat> any technology hurdles or finding actors. You know, they get through production, they get through post production. They've made a fairly good film or a watchable film, and uh, maybe they even get into a film festival or two. But distribution never never happens. Uh, you have been distributed a number of times. Yes. I want you to tell us, tell us about that and tell us about your first experience. And if you've had better experiences since then, or if that was a really good one, just let us know about the distribution distribution process for your film. Sure. Uh, I've been very fortunate in, in the realm of distribution. I've not had big problems finding distribution. I have a very good foot in the door because I worked at a distributor. I, uh, I know the ins and outs of their business. I know, uh, I know how it works. I worked in marketing. I worked in post-production. I worked in, uh, I even worked in shipping and receiving. I was kind of a catch-all, you know, I was that, I was the last person hired and I caught all the loose ends cause I could, I could edit, I could, uh, you know, I could fill envelopes and I could go to conventions. Mm-hmm. So, um, I learned so much and, uh, my first experience with distribution was on my second feature faces of schlock. Uh, I had, no luck getting Marty Jenkins distributed, but it broke even after about a year. Um, 
but that film showed the company I ended up working for that I was serious, but they wouldn't touch it. They were like, we, we love that you did this, but we don't want it. So well, who, who picked up the Jenkins film? Uh, nobody. I, I self-released that. Oh, you. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That was a uh, self-released on DVD and, and video on demand about two years ago when, uh, when uh, Amazon started create spacing the whole thing. Yeah. So, which has been great because it, it makes a little bit of money every month and I'm always shocked. Which for anybody who doesn't know it, you can, anybody with an Amazon account can basically upload uh, their film and sell it sort sort of like their self, their book publishing. Yeah. Um, they can, you know, if, if, as long as you're willing to hit the pavement and, and try to, uh, try to get people to buy it, uh, you can make a little bit of money back. Yeah. You get half of the sale Yeah, and, uh, yep. that's not bad. So, uh, but, uh, so with Marty, I didn't have any distribution and because I, I got uprooted, actually Marty fell into a weird limbo. Because uh, I had just premiered it and started showing it and started selling copies. And then I had to uproot everything and move to New Jersey. So it really, to me, it, it actually, I didn't have the time to really get it to a good audience the way I wish I had. And you know what's weird is the where it found its audience was that I used to list it on eBay every week for like six ninety nine just to try and get more people to see it. And I, I swear for about a year, I sold almost one a week on eBay and, and these eBayers, I would include a little note that said, I made this film. Thank you so much. And they were all people looking for vampire movies. That's really mm-hmm. what it came down to. It was when vampires were starting to get hot again. And uh, I got a lot of really nice letters from people saying like, you know, I really loved it. I, the best letter I ever got from eBay was a guy who sent me it because he got a defective unit and he wasn't mad. He was just like, can you please, I only saw the first 40 minutes. Can you please send me a replacement? Oh, so, that's awesome. And I priority the disc to him. I was like, shit, he <laughs> wants to see how it ends. Fuck Yes. <laughs> But um, that's what what year was that? Uh, Marty Jenkins was completed in 2006. Well, and, it, was oh, the, that year the, same that, year? the year that the, it was getting that people were buying it a lot was 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it wasn't that long ago. No. It was it's post Netflix streaming. And well, that's really interesting because that uh, I've, I've never thought of that as a tactic for just connecting with individuals who might want to see films like yours. Yeah. It, it, well, and, uh, and like I said, it really lucked out. It's the same with Amazon VOD. It really lucked out because it has vampires in the title. So people who are looking for vampires find it right away. Right. Um, so that's a, a big part of it. But it also, I've noticed that people connect with it because like I, I mentioned earlier, it's so personal. Like if you've ever been dumped, it's the vampire movie for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, Oh my God, that should have been in the trailer. Fucker. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and the black, the black shirts have been dumped. So yeah. that works. Yeah. But, uh, so then, uh, when I did faces of schlock, I, I brought together some of the most talented filmmakers I have ever known. Uh, a guy named Chris LaMartina out of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, a gentleman named Justin channel out of West Virginia and a guy named Andrew Shearer out of Athens, Georgia. They were all friends of mine and we all made short films and, and I made a wraparound, uh, and we called it faces of schlock. We'd actually done this when I was 18 years old, like in our backyards, we had made a little face of the schlock and it was pretty successful. It sold like uh, 200 units that I was making in my bedroom. So I was like, wow, that's f- fuck. So when we remade it, uh, we were getting ready to, to self distribute it. Uh, but I had found us a sub distributor, which meant that we would manufacture a thousand units, but mm. the sub distributor could put them into stores and into online retail, all that stuff. Um, but, we had something fall through with the financing of our manufacturer. I was poor. I was broke. I had nothing. Um, so I went to the sub distributor, which was where I used to work alternative cinema. And, uh, I told them, well, we got to figure this out. And they, uh, they looked at the movie again and went, you know what? We'll just distribute it. <laughs> we'll just take it. And, uh, it ended up getting into FYE. That was its big, its big thing. It got into FYE stores everywhere and it ended up doing way better business than they expected. Uh, you know, the, 
alternative cinema is a great i'm trying to figure out how what to say that doesn't violate a non-disclosure agreement yes but yes. uh they are great because they'll be very honest with you you know they'll take uh your movie and say we don't know how many people are going to buy this but we're going to give it a shot and uh we lucked out with faces of schlock um and then when i made bleeding through as soon as it was done i went this is an art film no one is going to want this but the people who are fans of mine. I started saving up my money to press it myself. And then I sent it to Alternative Cinema as a gesture of good faith. Like, I was like, hey, in case you guys might want this. And they called me almost immediately and said, you know what? We can take a risk on one art house movie a year. So let's mm. make it yours. And uh, it ended up doing very well uh, in its first six months. It came out January 22nd, 2012. So it uh, it actually made a, or 2000, no, 2013. Uh, but uh, it actually uh, made a sale to AT&T U-verse, which uh, no one was expecting. So if, you, if you're out there and you have AT&T U-verse, they have a screen pack, which is like their own Netflix. You can watch Bleeding Through included with your screen pack. Very <laughs> neat. Uh, and actually, they'd released Bleeding Through, and then with, after we'd signed the contract and I'd delivered the Masters, they hired me to make Babysitter Massacre. I made that for them. That's their movie. Oh, interesting. And uh, we had a you know a talk. We, we figured out money. We figured out a schedule. And uh, I actually I shot that movie in November of 2012, and it was released October 15th of 2013. So it was a pretty – not as fast a turnaround as Haunted House and Sorority Row. Haunted House and Sorority Row was finished being edited in January, and it comes out July. <laughs> Has Babysitter Massacre been doing some business for them? Um, as far as I can tell, yes. It uh, it got it, it came out October 15th. It was in Blockbuster Nationwide right before they announced that they were closing officially. But, yeah. but that doesn't matter. The check cleared, you know, so fuck. But, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but I haven't seen any sales statements yet because uh, you get them on a quarterly basis. So I, I can only say that um, it got Blockbuster. It got FYE really huge. You know, that was uh, – I'll mention this in a second. Don't let me forget to talk about FYE. But um, – uh, and then uh, it also sold to Amazon Prime Streaming, which mm -hmm. uh, which is you know Netflix's number one competitor, and that right. was a big thrill when that came through. Uh, mainly because you know that they probably paid an upfront license fee, and I can't wait to see <laughs> what it was because I have some profit participation in the film. So that's how, that's how I watched it. I spent my four dollars on the HD rental yesterday. Awesome, awesome. It looked <laughs> it looked pretty good, right? Yeah, it looked really good. No, they, 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 that, that was, and it was also really, you know, it was it was the exact experience of Netflix, really. Yeah, no, exactly. I really recommend uh, getting an Amazon Prime membership because between the experience of Netflix uh, that you get and the experience of the second day air free shipping, you're you're set. You're fucking set. That's my opinion. But uh, mm -hmm. and they're taking a lot more niche stuff, not just Babysitter Massacre. I, I noticed that because I actually when they when they announced it was on Prime, I was already a member. So I was like, oh, my God, and I like, clicked that. I was like, people can see it in HD. They can see <laughs> it in HD because that was a uh, I shot that on a T3i with uh, this is getting nerd for a second. I shot that on a Canon T3i with uh, the uh, Technicolor Cinestyle. Yes. And yep. I think it looks pretty damn. It looks better than it has any right to. Uh, mm -hmm. so now I shoot on a, a bit higher end camera, uh, that I like a lot, but man, DSLR, you get, if you, if you pay a thousand bucks on a DSLR equipment, you get like $3,000 worth of, of, of quality, as long as you are willing to jank it until it does what you want. And you can have some, some fun with, uh, you know, as long as they have a, um, a mount, uh, you can have some fun with older lenses too. Oh yeah. I, uh, right now I shoot on a, a Sony FS 100 which is a little bit higher end camera, but it, uh, it, it has a, a shallow flange. You can put any lens on it. You want with an adapter. I only use Canon FD lenses. I have a yep. prime set of set 1970s era lenses and they look, they look boss. Um, 
But uh, to go back to FYE, I want to mention that mm-hmm. when Babysitter mm-hmm. Massacre came out, I can't disclose the exact budget, but it was low. It was low. Uh, it was on the new release shelf next to the heat. And that's that's our business, man. You, yeah. My movie that cost less than the food budget of the heat. The heat was na- nationwide in theaters. It had a huge stars and it's Sandra Bullock. It was directed by Paul Feig. I liked it, too. That doesn't hurt. Uh, mm-hmm. It had the biggest marketing campaign ever. Same street date as Babysitter Massacre. And they're on the <laughs> same shelf in the same sized box. Technically, they have the same sales opportunities <laughs> as one sick. another. That's sick to me. That's yeah. And I remember that that was when I went, wow. And then I stopped taking it so personally when people rip your movie apart on uh, on your Amazon or whatever. Because I'm like, shit, I'm on a shelf next to a movie that cost 90 million dollars. <laughs> yeah, right. fuck it. You know, fuck it. I'm just glad to be on the shelf. That reminds me, you, uh, I saw a, I was going through your YouTube channel, which, which again also has loads of content and people can check that out. Um, I saw a, an eight minute rant, uh, comical rant against, uh, bad reviewers. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, although after I've watched both of your films, I looked for reviews and for the most part, eight out of 10 lowest I was, I was seeing was six out of 10 people dig the movies. So how often are you running into the, the shitty reviewer? Not often. You know, the funny thing is that video, which is a, one of my proudest moments, by the way, uh, <laughs> because that video was basically me telling the aristocrats joke. It was like my own yeah. version of a shaggy dog story. You just exactly. you keep expanding, expanding. And the great thing about that was that I kept taking back what I said after I said it. So then at the end of it, I'm like, really, all I want to say is keep it up. Like, so whenever people would say like, you're being really unfair, I'd be like, what? I'm, I'm supportive. Yeah. Watch the video. Yeah. But um, it was really and I won't I, I decided I would never uh, directly confront. But there's one reviewer that every movie I have that's released wide. They tear it apart and assault my character. Mm. Like they actually said on one of my movies that it was clear this movie was made by a loser burnout hippie or something like that. And I was like, what does that have to do with the fucking movie? Why don't you tell me that something's not good? Why, don't, why do you have to say I'm a piece of shit? Because frankly, I'm not. I'm a very attractive man, and I don't see why you know they would have a problem with me. But uh, every every film I make that's going out for wide, I always debate putting in them behind the scenes because I know they watch all the extras. I always debate putting just right at the end of the credits, me flipping them the bird and saying, "I hope you fucking eat it." But I don't <laughs> because that's not constructive and that doesn't get anything accomplished. When I made that video, that was kind of me. That was me. uh, Basically, I had talked to a friend about that. And I literally, what I just said to you, I'd said to them that whole thing where I said, I want to tell them, you know, that they should uh, drown in their children's blood, but that's not constructive. So I'm not going to say that. And my friend was like, dude, you should, you should not say all of this. Yeah. Not say it. (laughs) Because I I didn't even realize that that's my personality is that I would say these horrible things and then say, but I'm not going to. And I meant, and I meant it. I was like, I'm not going to say those things. I'm not going to put those things out there because I don't think it's constructive. And it isn't just like their reviews aren't constructive because I have no problem with bad reviews. I have a problem with bad reviews that aren't constructive or aren't about the movie. Yeah. Well, like, uh, I, or, or like ones that are so wrong. Like you ever notice how somebody could say your story's bad. It doesn't hurt your feelings. But then if they say clearly this was shot on like a VHS camcorder, you're like, motherfucker, I spent $3,000 on that camera and those lenses. You know, like somebody would say like, this clearly is like a high school production. I'm like, motherfucker, we had a jib and we pulled focus and your mother, you know, that, yeah, right. that's, that's what hurts me way more than somebody saying your story's boring is when they're flat out wrong. <laughs> Being inaccurate. Right. They, uh, yeah, I I, uh, I don't understand going after the director. I, I also I'm not really a big fan of 
a culture where where criticism is based off of the director, you know, and trying to understand the director's intention and what they were thinking and if they executed or not. Just watch the movie. Yeah. Try, try, try to forget about the people behind the camera. That's what you're doing when you make a movie is you're trying to create an illusion that there are there is no camera. There are no people behind the camera. Exactly. Take it for what it is. If you think the acting's bad, talk about how the acting's bad. Well, and that's know? and that's why. Um when you start dealing with a lot of distributors, you start to notice how secretive everybody is about budgets. Mm-hmm. The reason that everybody is so, and now myself included, are so secretive about budgets is because it's the same thing. It, it instills a sense of, well, this can only be so good. It colors your whole experience. So you want them to watch your movie and have no clue how much you spent, or in some cases mislead them into thinking you spent more, so that they will judge it more fairly. Uh, particularly, uh, like, uh, Bulldog for Christmas, uh, is being it was my first film. It's it's going to be released uh, in December, uh, in, in nationwide and uh, in some overseas markets. I got a producer's rep for that, which I'd tell you more about it, but it hasn't wrapped yet, so I can't tell you how it turned out. I'm hoping well, but I had a producer's rep once and it was rough. No, they can be they can be shysters. The the, the good news was that he wasn't. The reason I I decided to go with him was well, first of all, he'd repped some stuff I'd seen, mm-hmm. but also. He didn't come after me for something I didn't think was sellable. He came after me for a movie I specifically made for the home video market. Yeah. I made right. a family movie about a talking dog because they're doing very well. Yeah. You know, and uh, so when he came, he sought me out, I was like, it makes sense because he can sell this. He sold movies like it. And uh, I can't say officially yet, but like we're closing on Germany and England and he's talking to U.S. distributors. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But it's coming out this year, uh, yep. Uh, yep. you know, wide. But um, then I did Haunted House and Sorority Row, which was also for the same distributor. So that was a film uh, made for the market as well. Well, the producer rep pointed out that you don't want the distributors to know if your movie is really cheap because then they'll base their offer on how much you made it for and not how good the movie is or how much yeah, right. it fits a niche. So now, you know, we just don't you don't publish it. You don't publish what it really cost. I, I made a movie. I made sexually Frank, which I showed you the trailer too. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, the movie was made for whatever was in our pockets. And, um, but I've, I've seen people raise a lot of money to make movies that look a lot worse. So I was like, what would happen? Nobody really knows what movies cost and they don't really know what goes into each element. And you know, they're confusing which camera you used anyway. What if I just walked around and said the movie cost $250,000 <laughs> you can would yeah you know, would people uh be like oh I'd, I'd like to check that movie out you know i bet they would it would it would it would differently color their uh their desire to watch it or not watch it well, sure well and not only that but you know and then you can start thinking like well my movie could if if we shot 16 days and everyone made sag minimum and right. the crews made sag minimum then uh we'd be spending you know seven thousand dollars a day so take any equipment take any equipment you already own tally that up yeah yeah rental right. fees and everything so uh, you know, and people do often ignore sweat equity. You know, they mm-hmm. do ignore how much time people put in. That's one of the reasons I keep my shoots uh, short, not only because I like to get things done quickly, but because I like the idea that when I ask somebody to act in a film for free, I could be like, I have a lead role for you. I can't afford to pay you, but four days of your life and you're done and you're the lead. Yeah. You know, and I bet and they'll come back for the next one, too, if you like them. And you know what they also I got to say. Uh, actors really love the instant gratification of the fact that my movies usually have a four month turnaround and then they're screening in a theater. Like it it helps keep you excited, you know, knowing that like, Oh, here's that movie I was just in and I'm starting the next one next week. You know, like it's, it's it's, it's hard out there for an actor. They don't know which projects to choose because there's a lot of filmmakers and a lot of crap. And, uh, you know, to, 
it's okay if they're willing to invest a little bit of time for an outcome that isn't quite what they wanted. They're really scared, rightfully, of investing a lot of their time in something that doesn't get finished or gets finished very poorly or, t- you know, they don't see a product for years or maybe the director forgot to send them a copy. So when they run into filmmakers like you, they're like, you know what? I got a good thing here. I'm going to keep being in this guy's movies. Well, being prolific helps a lot because people know you're going to complete your project. People know you're not just talking because unfortunately there are a lot of people who just talk. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. My friend, uh, John Dalton, the the screenwriter who uh, who's just a phenomenally talented guy. His uh, his thing is he always describes it as one of those people who just want to talk about making movies. He says what they want you to do is share in their delusion momentarily so that they can feel like they make movies. And I'm not trying to be a dick. It's just that some people do that. And uh, it can be very frustrating when you don't learn to ignore it at first, because then you get really excited. You're like, wow, this guy's really going to make this thing and I'm going to help him with it. And it sounds really fun. And, and he's really nice. And then you're like, oh, wait, it's it's like it's been seven months and we're not yeah. doing anything. And your your respect really does kind of plummet. Yeah. For, for, for that person. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it, and it happens. But uh, that's and that's another thing. Like, it's the same thing on Kickstarter, too. I got really lucky with a lot of people wanting to get in on my Kickstarter because they look at my track record and they're like, I mean, like I today, literally this morning before you and I started talking, I released the teaser trailer for Awkward Thanksgiving to my Kickstarter backers. I'll release it mm-hmm. publicly like tomorrow. But mm-hmm. um, I released that to them. We they they it finished funding on I think it was February 20th was when it ended. And they've already got a teaser and principal photography's wrapped. You know, the, the movie's going to be done in about three months because we actually I can't go into detail. But uh, we had a distribution offer for Awkward Thanksgiving based solely on the teaser trailer, hmm. uh, a digital and on demand distribution uh, offer that is perfect for the film. And uh, I'm probably going to sign it, but I can't go into detail. Yeah. I hate that. I hate when I have to do that because I sound like I sound so grown up. Can't tell you how. Can't tell you why. But no, uh, <laughs> but they, they you know, this uh, company wants it and they want to release it pretty, pretty wide on video on demand. And that's exactly where the movie needs to be. Yeah. So, um, and this is without a rep or anything. This is just, you know, a friend of mine once told me, uh, Brett Kelly told me like, once you make like 10 features, like people call you, you don't have to, you don't have to worry anymore (laughs) as much. Well, well, uh, DVD is pretty out of vogue right now, but I, I don't know this. You can tell us, I imagine that for at least the horror genre or the low budget horror genre, uh, uh, there's still a market there. I also, from observation know that we at least still know how to monetize DVD, even if they're not selling as well. So is, have you found that you've still been okay on DVD or oh, is yeah. that really kind of fading out? You actually, you hit the nail on the head. I, uh, DVD is still doing pretty well for, uh, for, uh, niche for like horror and science fiction. Uh, yeah. people are not sick of DVD yet. The thing is what's happening is everything's going to move to video on, in my opinion, everything's going to move to video on demand. Blu-ray is not going to take DVDs place. Blu-ray is a collector medium. Yes. Um, which is how I use it. I, I like I realized I realized what Blu-ray's future was when I realized I was buying Blu-rays based on the review of the transfers. Like I wanted a Shout Factory Blu-ray because they do the best job. Like I want the ultimate copy of this movie remastered, properly colored. I want it, you know, yada, yada, yada. But archival. Yeah. yeah. And there are a few diehard Blu-ray people who because they collect on Blu-ray, they would like to have my film on Blu-ray. But they're not a big market. You know, uh, we're talking about right now about doing limited Blu-ray runs of some of my films. We're talking like 50 to a hundred units, just a limited run for those people who really want it. And I really want to do that just because I went to all the trouble shooting in HD, but that's, that's me being, you know, like that. I just make them 
to order. Uh, you know, I have a Blu-ray burner and a label printer. And if people want, you know, I make really deluxe, beautiful Blu-rays and it's for people that actually are that interested in my shit. You know, I sure. don't want to let, let them down. <laughs> well, I can do that with like uh, depression, the movie or something, but I can't do that with the films that are actually owned by other companies. I have to, oh, I have to have you, a license you, you don't to go through. Sh- yeah, you don't share in the the manufacturing like that. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Babysitter yeah. Massacre, Haunted House, and Sorority Row. I don't own those films. Uh, I made those for hire. I have participation in them, and I have a mm-hmm. lot of freedom to make what I wanted, which was fucking awesome, by the way. Uh, to do that, to have to have a movie, to make a movie, it's weird. Like to make a movie and know where it's going on the marketplace is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, because all my heroes did that. I don't know. Uh, I don't know a ton about your, your background, but like my heroes were people like, uh, uh, Roger Corman and, uh, Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray and, uh, and David Dakota. And sure. those are my, my biggest heroes. And then it's weird. Like, and then Woody Allen and you know, like it's, it's, so I have a weird kind of, although you know what you listen to D- Jim Wynorski talk about how he directs a movie and listen to Woody Allen talk about how he directs a movie. They're like the same guy. They both just want to get it done. They want to get it right and they want to move on. It's yeah. very fascinating in that way. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it blew my mind because I used to be kind of embarrassed that I just wanted to like get it done and go. And then I watched a Woody Allen documentary and he's like, come on, I want to get home and go to dinner. And I was like, I don't feel so bad that this guy's a genius. So fuck it. Yeah, no, it's the same exact mindset. Yeah. Um, and then finally, something that I wanted to, to ask you about was um, it, it sounds like your actors and your crew are really loving this, loving this ride that you're, you've kind of put them on. Um, but you, you ask them to do things that, uh, sometimes they would be hesitant to do. I'm not just talking about nudity. I'm also talking about, uh, some of the more physical stuff with horror or, or language or whatever. Um, are, are they just completely game or have you found the people that are always game to do that? Did you have to develop trust with them? What, what went into kind of getting them, them to be so candid on camera with their bodies and with their mouths? You know, uh, it's interesting you, you ask because, uh, like a question I get asked a lot that's a lot less intellectual is just like, how do you get girls to be naked in your movie? And yeah. uh, my response is always, I ask them. Uh, there is a level of trust. You know, um, it's funny because some of the people I've worked with, I built trust with, and some of them were just so game. Like I've met a lot of people who are just so game to do whatever the hell it's going to be on camera. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, uh, an actress that ended up being the lead in Haunted House and Sorority Row. She was in Babysitter Massacre. Her name's Joni Durian. She played Lucky, the girl who had a very unfortunate end in the basement. Uh, yes. She was cast via Facebook. The girl who was supposed to play her dropped out, um, and we were in a panic. I met uh, Joni at a uh, at a restaurant. She read the script, told me what she thought. I made sure she was cool with it all. She, uh, she shook my hand. I took her next door to a Walmart. We bought her lingerie for the scene, and then we shot a week later. Oh, wow. Uh, she was just super game. Uh, of course, she did tell me that, you know, after she arrived there and saw how many other crew people they, they were, that were there, she was like, okay, I really don't think I'm going to get murdered now. You know, but, <laughs> but I, had yeah. a, I had a lot of mutual friends with her and I have a reputation, uh, you know, for being a filmmaker and for hopefully not being too much of a monster of a person. So, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it does take a little bit of, of that, of that, um, of having a kind of a back and forth. Uh, one thing that really helped me was depression. The movie because depression, the movie, every actor that was in that was thrilled with their role because it was like mm-hmm. that movie was full of uh, what I would call um, demo reel material. It's like oh, everybody's yeah. crying. Everybody's being really candid. Everybody's sharing pain. Everybody's sharing laughter. It's like, it's just, a, it's like one long demo reel for everyone in it. <laughs> 
So, yeah. uh, and I'm, and you know, I, so, and, and that was kind of a thought process in it too, because I was like, how am I going to get people to do this? This was the first movie I had done in Dayton and, and Dayton, Ohio in like four or five years. Do they have, uh, do, do the major cities in Ohio, the neighboring cities, do they have, um, any kind of casting agencies or any, like we, in, I'm in Boston and we have, um, New England actors and New England film. And that's normally where we put up classifieds and you can sort of, you know, uh, film colleges you can meet there and, and audition people. Do you have anything like that? We do, but I never use them. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, uh, for, I don't know. Uh, you know, I might change my tune eventually. I'm making, I'm making a lot of movies. So eventually I'm going to have to find even more people and eventually I'm going to have to to reach out and eventually people are going to reach out to me more and more because it's just uh, like even I'm I mean, this year is probably going to wrap three features and, uh, you know, I'm just going and going and going. And every time uh, every time one feature goes into pre-production, I'm getting another script written or I'm starting one myself. You know, I, I just never want it to stop. To be honest, I just don't want to stop. <laughs> but like uh, I've never dealt with organizations because they always rub me the wrong way. And that might be me and my Ian Randian attitudes of life. But like, I just, you know, we have film organizations right in town that I don't work with because they give me the wrong vibe. They give me a sense that they don't really care about what I'm doing or the style I'm doing it at. Like I get the feeling that they'll only care when I have a huge hit. And at yeah. that point, I'll really want them to go away. <laughs> like, I won't care. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not opposed to working with a casting agency, but um, but for the most part, I cast I cast a lot of stand-up comedians. Uh, I cast a lot of musicians. And I cast a lot of people who are just interested. Uh, that's been a big thing. Like, if somebody says, uh, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm in the Dayton area, I really want to get involved in film, what... What can I do to help you out? I always respond the exact same way. I say, uh, you know, on blank date, we have a premiere of a film. You come to that show, you buy a ticket, you walk up to me, you introduce yourself, you shake my hand, and then we'll talk a little bit, and then you'll probably be on the next set. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I need to know you're serious, that you want to support the work, number one. That you, uh, you know, that you're a real person I can touch, number two. Yeah. And then that I kind of get a sense of who you are, you know, at least like a vague sense, you know, at least I'm like, oh, that person. And sometimes it works great and sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes they're, they're still flaky. A lot of people recommend that, you know, as, as useful as like a Skype audition can be, <clears throat> you really ought to ask people to show up someplace before you're rolling cameras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although my pre-production moves so fast, once I trust somebody, I, uh, I never... I, I'm like terrible. I don't even do meetings. I don't do read throughs. I don't do rehearsals. I'm just like, well, that's why, that's why you want to build a family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I gotta say, uh, the group I have is so incredible and I never thought I'd build one so fast. Uh, babysitter massacre. Most of the people in babysitter massacre, it was their first time working with me. And now they've, you know, they're going into like their, their fifth time working with me. So, uh, that's a really exciting aspect too. And, uh, and I love like last night we did a, a second showing of haunted house on sorority row. And, uh, so many of the actors and actresses and crew people showed up, even though they didn't have to, it wasn't the world premiere, you know, it was just another show. Uh, mm -hmm. and they showed up just cause they wanted to like hang out and, and, you know, give hugs and sign some pictures and talk, uh, you know, and talk about how excited they are. Cause we just wrapped a different movie <laughs> and stuff like that. So, you know, you build a group of people that you like being around, and I've actually gotten to the point now where like when we shot Awkward Thanksgiving, we did a three day weekend and a two day weekend and then a weekend of pickups. And uh, 
I had people actually saying like they were bummed we only did three days. And I was like, that's unusual. That's where you want to be. Yeah. You want to be there where people are saying, can't we film more? Because then my response is, well, I have this script. Let me tell you about it because I already have you in mind for a, for a part. And then they're excited. and They're asking you about it. They're like, when is this? I wish I could say the name of one of them. They're all tied up. It's such a bitch. Like, and I'm like weeks away from knowing what the next thing I'm going to roll cameras on is. Uh, it's going to be a horror thing. I, I'm actually excited because it looks like what we're going to do next is a horror, like a kind of a mystery thriller. Like it's not going to be very gory. It's not going to be uh, too in your face. It's going to be really subtle, you know, good excuse to use the dolly track. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You've had one for so long. Yeah. A lot of people don't, um, or, or it's important that that filmmakers keep in mind that actors and crew, of course, they're looking to be involved in a good film, but often they're more interested in being vo- involved in a good experience. And it sounds to yeah. me like you are providing a good experience two, three times a year for these people. And uh, and that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you. So thanks for talking to us. And should we uh, outside of everything you can't talk about, what can you talk about? If, if people are now interested in your work, where should, where should you direct them? Oh, sure. Uh, well, I highly recommend that they just find me on Facebook, uh, because that is where I talk the most candidly about everything I'm up to and everything I'm working on. Um, obviously they'll never spell my name to save their lives, Henrik Kuto, but uh, I'm sure in your show notes or something, we'll have it in there. Um, you know, you can Google me. If you Google Henrik Kuto, H-E-N-R-I-Q-U-E-C-O-U-T-O, uh, anything in English is probably about me. So, uh, so you can find me on there. Uh, I have a website, uh, which I, uh, I need to update, but it's called incredibly That's where you can find more information. Uh, my films are available on amazon.com, uh, lots of different sources. Um, my, I really recommend if you guys are hanging out, uh, you know, listening to this and you want to see some of my stuff, just grab yourself babysitter massacre or depression. The movie on Amazon instant there, uh, uh, babysitters like two ninety five or three ninety five for HD and depressions two ninety nine. Uh, they're, they're great little rentals. Um, this December bulldog for Christmas will be out. Keep an eye out for that. Awkward Thanksgiving will be out in November. Um, and, uh, really just Facebook is where you can really find out everything. Haunted house of sorority road, July 22nd on DVD and video on demand everywhere. Uh, <laughs> man, no wonder I'm tired. Like fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in a very good place. You're in a place that a lot of people want to be tired because you're constantly working with awesome stuff. Thanks so much for being on the, on the show, Henrik. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, man. and laughing and getting candy and then she was gone. The guy with the white face. His entire head is white. It's the season. 
Thank you.